and welcome to episode 30 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. My name is David and I'm back in control. I hope you enjoyed uh, episode 29 with uh, Richo's take on uh, MCN. My superior take. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, and with me are the aforementioned Richo. I want my power back. Luke. Uh, not this week. Damn it. And Crystal. Free from my binds and gags. <laughs> I don't keep you trussed up as a gimp in between episodes. <laughs> no, I meant, I meant after Richo's control. Ah, oh, <laughs> oppressive regime. You, you didn't actually get that part. Rick, Richo's dictatorship. across. I don't know why. Yes. Nerd Culture I'm... Podcast ruled with an iron fist. <laughs> nerd Culture Podcast is a fortnightly Australian podcast that focuses on nerd culture related film, book, and comic reviews with a healthy dose of opinion thrown in for good measure. Not only do we have the podcast, but we also have our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com Which features additional content not found on the podcast itself. For this episode, we have a dust jacket. We'll be discussing the novel Alien Influences by Crystal's favourite author, Christine Catherine Rush. A roundtable on NCP's top five movie cliches. And we also introduce a new segment called Channel Zero, where we'll be discussing TV shows with our first being Star Trek The Next Generation. Before we get into it, I just want to talk about uh, my experience on the tram on the way home. I was sitting there uh, reading my comic, uh, Alpha Flight, I believe, and um, a young man sat next to me and he, and he started asking questions about the comics and then, and, and, you know, what, what are you reading and all that sort of stuff. I'm perfectly polite, but I automatically got guarded. It was like I'd gone back to school days and it was like, you know, the, the bullies were picking on me for reading comics. It's like, what are you reading that crap for, sort of stuff. So I'm not too sure why I got so defensive. Also, also you, you don't expect people to be nice to you on the tram. Yeah, that's true. You're trying to just you know, avoid eye avoid contact, contact as much as you can. But uh, but he was uh, perfectly nice. Yeah, he introduced himself, but I have actually forgotten his name, so I'm really sorry about that. Um, but uh, he was he was really, really cool, and uh, we are talking about comics, and apparently he goes to All Star as well, so he buys his comics from All Star, so... We had something in common, so that was cool. Gave him a business card. He seemed very interested. Yeah, he, was, yeah. he was a really nice guy. And also, he had the good sense to agree with uh, everything I said with my views on comics. So That's because you're always right. It's, it means he's a man of quality. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, if you're listening, um, I apologise for not remembering your name, but uh, pop in a, in a note to say hi, and <laughs> it'd be cool. And uh, thanks for being so nice. Okay, so coming up first... Dust Jacket with Crystal's Choice, Alien Influences by Christine Catherine Rush. So we are trying something a little bit different uh, for Dust Jacket. In the past, I've basically chosen the books. Because he's Captain Dust Jacket. That's right, I'm Captain, Captain Dust, Dust Jacket. Jacket. You know, I like that. I want a t-shirt that says Captain Dust Jacket Coming on it. soon to an Archie comic near you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, for this Dust Jacket and the next few Dust Jackets, we're going to try something a bit different and uh, basically give each of the other NCP members a chance to choose a book and, uh, you know, let me kick back and relax a little bit. So we thought we'd start with Crystal, who has chosen uh, Alien Influences by Christine Catherine Rush. So, Alien Influences actually begins with a novella, um, a murder mystery set on a planet called Bountiful, involving the murder of a group of children who have their hands, hearts, and lungs removed, which is quite horribly gruesome. The planet Bountiful is known for the production of salt juice, which is an addictive substance that... Uh, well, has... they don't think it's addictive. Cause, well, they try to cover up 
obviously. The fact that it's addictive. Uh, yes, it supposedly has no side effects whatsoever. Which is produced by an, a group of aliens called Dancers. And then uh, the locals basically process it and ship it off planet, uh, making quite a substantial profit. The Dancers and the humans on the planet are segregated in many respects. Um, and they don't really have a great deal of interaction outside of the, produce, the production of this uh, of the salt juice. But the dancers have a ritual where their children, who are kind of useless to begin with, not really very active and uh, basically treated like animals, but then their hands and heart and lungs are cut out and uh, that's basically a rite of passage. And there's a ritual performed by the dancers to allow the children to grow to adults. The, the missing body parts actually grow back. It's like uh, baby teeth coming out. So when human children start showing up uh, killed in uh, in the same way that uh, the dancers perform this ritual. An off-world human specialist in alien psychology called Justin Schaefer is actually brought in to investigate. The locals, um, the local authorities believe that the dancers are the ones actually involved and uh, well, they're the ones the, doing they, the killings. They want the, And they, they want really it. want that to be the case yeah. um, because they want uh, the dancers done away with um, the problem has always been in the past that only the dancers could produce um, the salt juice, but now the humans believe that they've developed a way to do it, and so therefore they want to get rid of the dancers because they just they cause too many problems and they think they're now superfluous. Um, and they're racist pigs. And they're racist pigs. Let's not forget that. The humans, part. not the dancers. Schaefer, however, discovers the true culprits, and I will have to spoil this because it really does pretty much well, shape the rest story. of the the it's rest like, of the novel. It's, it's kind of in the blurb on the book anyway. Yeah. Well, it's, actually, ah, okay, cool. it's, it's interesting. That I actually don't think that the, the so-called murder mystery at the start is really all that important. It's, it's, I don't well, think it it's does all that set much up of a mystery. The story. I had it figured out in the first couple of pages. Yeah, mm. yeah true, so but it does set up the story. It does. So I, I don't think you're spoiling anything, like you said, because it actually it, it forms the basis of the story. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, just, yeah, it's, really, it's really not that much of a mystery. You can't really talk about the rest of the book without... No, exactly right. Exactly right. So Schaefer discovers that um, it's actually a group of children, uh, human children, who are doing the killings um, because they basically want to become adults so they can get off planet. They want to get away from the oppressive nature of Bountiful. And so they believe that by performing the same rituals on human children that, um, that they will instantly grow to adulthood. Naturally, of course, that doesn't turn out to be the case because human children can't regrow their organs once they're removed. Or can they? <laughs> so the initial story ends with Schaefer um, solving the mystery and the children arrested for multiple cases of murder. From there, the story then actually shifts to the children. Um, we're taken through their early incarceration and their separation from one another. In order to avoid a political situation, the children are actually um, smuggled out of the prison and onto the penal colonies separate from one another. Mm. Um, and from there, we actually follow uh, their individual stories, focusing primarily on uh, John, who becomes a bounty hunter. So, Crystal, we're given the option to choose basically any book you liked. And so you picked this one. So, yeah, what, so what was of, it that Out of all that? the books in the world, why this one? Exactly. Well, basically, I've been rabbiting on about Christine Catherine Rushburn as long as you guys have even known me, because apart from Asimov, she's my favourite author ever. And uh, you guys have been intrigued enough to want to actually experience some of her work. So I tried to choose something from her body of work that was a standalone novel. It wasn't part of a series. 
and uh, I chose this one because it uh, it shows off her skills as a mystery writer as well as a science fiction writer. Um, I mean, she does other genres as well under other names, but I most enjoy her science fiction. Not to say I don't enjoy the other stuff as well. It's all very good. I discovered Christine Cashman Rush um, two decades ago, maybe a bit less than that. I'm not sure. Uh, through reading Star Trek novels. Um, I went through a phase of reading lots of Star Trek novels and some are very good, some are very bad uh, <laughs> and, and I decided to track down some of the authors that I liked and see if they wrote anything else and I found a ton of other stuff of hers this is probably one of the first books I ever read of hers so that's a, that's the other reason why I chose it uh, sort of, uh, so she was obviously one of the good ones yeah, uh, yeah the good ones <laughs> uh, and her husband Dean Wesley Smith is also another one of the good ones I chose this one primarily because of its standalone and also because it's one of the first ones I read so it's more sort of my introduction to her I just introduce you guys to her the same way Ooh, fair enough what I like initially about the story is uh, when I first my very first time around reading it and the the children's story at first seemed to me a little a little far-fetched I thought uh, how could they believe so deeply that what they were doing was right but as you read the story and you become aware of how the children have been living, the the lack of parenting that's been going on, and and, and the abuse that they've been suffering, yeah. that uh, they're going on all. I mean, there's no schooling involved at all either. So all they're going on is um, what they can figure out for themselves. Yeah, very much children's intuition. So it's very much yeah. yeah, children's intuition, and they're so desperate to escape this hellish life that they're living, that they're willing to go to these drastic means of, uh, of growing up so they can get off the planet because they've tried to get off the planet but nobody will take them without adult permission yeah. so they figure the only way they can get off the planet is to become adults and and what I always like about a Christine Catherine Rush story or novel is it always takes me off in a direction where I don't expect or I think it's going one way and then suddenly she's gone off in, a, in another way yeah I, I do agree this novel certainly went somewhere I didn't expect certainly early on and um as David said uh it you know it starts as a mystery but the mystery you pretty much worked it out fairly quickly what's going on mm. and I, I certainly I hadn't read the cover blurb or anything to know what the book was about so I thought well you know a few pages in and I've kind of already worked out what the answer to the mystery is so if this is a mystery novel we're in a bit of trouble yeah, um but yeah it is good because it actually becomes a story about yeah, as you say, it's about survivors, it's about abuse, yeah. it's about children who have been through a harrowing experience without any real understanding of what they did yeah. to begin with. The mystery is more about their motivation rather than yeah. who committed the crime. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And it, but more importantly, it becomes a very, uh, it becomes a strong sort of character piece and a character study of what happens to people because with, with murder mysteries, you very rarely find get the you know what happens after it's been solved story. Mm. Yeah. You know, usually a murder mystery is solved and that's it. You know, the person's going to jail or whatever. But this is actually a story about what happens to these children after they've committed this crime and what they go through and just how how the crime affects the lives that they live after that. There's also a good study of how a human culture may be influenced by a culture that is completely alien to us. Yeah, yeah. Hence the title. <laughs> and I've got to say that the, the dancers are actually a, quite a fascinating alien race. I was quite intrigued by them. And, you know, you, you can understand why the children become intrigued with their culture. I mean, it seems so much more 
peaceful, if nothing else, than the lives they're living and not, not as restrained and... Well, I think the, mo- the most important thing for them is that it's it's a spiritual culture yeah, which yeah. has no memory. Yeah. So that anything that happens in the past no longer applies. Exactly and right. Because their pasts are so horrible that, that that's per- that's the perfect solution for them. So not only, yeah. do the, not only do the dancers provide them with a means to forget what's happened to them, it also provides them with, with what they think to be a means to grow up mm. and get out yeah. of the situation mm. as fast yeah. as possible. There's also a greater emotional connection that they feel to the dancers. I mean, the dancers um, experience a lot of things by touch, and the very much the children have implied that they either they don't get affection from their parents, or they get effectively abuse from their parents, and so yeah, physical and sexual physical and sexual abuse. Um, and so, and really, that's what the story is about. It's about abuse victims and how that abuse affects their lives. Mm. Interestingly enough, the relationship between the children actually reminded me a bit of the relationship in Heavenly Creatures. Oh, interesting. You know, because the, the, the children, when uh, after the crime has been committed, the children are like, we cannot be separated. We've got to be together. We're drawing strength from one another. and Which is why they were separated, because this scares the adults. Exactly. And that's that's very similar to what, what's in Heavenly Creatures. So, um, yeah, what I find that the, the strength of this novel is that um, Russia's taken very human experiences and put them into a science fiction setting, but without losing track of the fact that these are humans, mm. and that no matter how how science fictiony the ideas are, yeah. that core human emotional connection is what's important to the story. Mm. I think that's what makes a good story. Uh, yeah. You can have your whiz-bang technology and your space battles and whatnot, but if there's no core humanity to the story, yeah. it, it just falls flat. Well, actually, I mean, talking about the humanity of the story, actually, my favourite part of the book was, was Beth's part. Mm, so, I agree. Yeah, poor Beth. Um, it's an interesting little segment, actually. Mm. It's, I mean, sort of, it, it cuts from uh, the incident that happens when the children, so they're separated and they're brought together for a short period and then something happens. It's it's quite quite horrific in terms of, uh, if you don't understand what's happening, it could seem to be quite horrific. And then they're separated again permanently for this, this time. And uh, it then cuts to Beth as an adult. And... Um, her experiences as a, a, an indentured servant uh, and effectively a prostitute at a ho- at a big, at a big hotel, and it's that to me was was quite shocking. Mm. Um, as it's like, well, I mean, it wouldn't, it's not it's not a children's book by any means. No, um, but it, when it starts off, it's quite. I mean, it's it's pretty. I wouldn't say it's basically written, but it's 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 pretty standard sort of all ages yeah. sort of stuff. And but then you get to this uh, you get to this story of Beth, who is is basically a sex slave mm. and. So she's escaped. She's escaped Bountiful, where I can only assume she was sexually abused, from what she sort of what she sort of describes, mm. to yeah. now becoming a. So, so she's come full circle, mm. and not only that, but she they use they take advantage of her her dancer experience to make her uh, a prostitute for alien races. Mm. So she specialises in alien races. Mm. Yeah. Now. It's, I mean, Christine Catherine. What I like about this is that Christine Catherine Rush goes out of her way to not make it titillating in any way. No. I mean, it's actually it's a it's a horrific experience mm. where people actually die from these experiences, mm. and Beth's the only one that manages to survive it because of her dancer training. Mm. Yeah. And just and the whole point of the story, the point of Beth's part is that uh, she finds a Minarian uh, who is basically like a like a seal or an otter or something mm. like that. He's sort of like a sentient. He's seal. like a sentient seal. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and and, uh, and it's illegal to take them off Manara because they're now because they're now protected, but the, of course the, you know, somebody in the hotel's got one, 
And so she, she makes it her mission to save this Minarian at, at mm. all costs um, because her life is worthless. And so if she can save the Minarian, then her life means something. Mm. And that it really blew me away. I mean, it's, mm. it, it started, the book started, the, the, the mystery, like I said before, it was, was no mystery at all. And yeah. I really wasn't interested in any way. But then it, cuts, it just completely, like Crystal says, just takes you off this, yeah. on this on this weird track to Beth. And I was just, mm. I was so blown away by the emotion mm. of this story that mm. I just, I was like, I was drawn right in. I was just yeah. like, well, I just, I want There's, Beth to win at all yeah. costs. Obviously, and, uh, with, the, with the with the initial story being written, obviously, earlier, yeah. you, can actually, you can actually see the change in tell. writing yeah. style. Yeah. Um, also, there is a lot of exposition, I think, in that initial yeah. 50 page or so story. Yeah, so there's a lot of you know, like you, 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 wrong, you're being terrible. told stuff yeah. about Schaefer, yeah, uh, rather than sort of seeing learning it, stuff, learning yeah. it through his experiences, mm. and that is that is I think the weakest part of the novel. Yeah, once you get into the story of the children, you're actually seeing a far more uh, accomplished writing style um, come through and a much more powerful emotional story. Yeah, I agree. Oh, I mean, it's, yeah. it's still not shabbily written by any means. It's still no. it's cool, well written. It's but, not as good as what comes afterwards. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. you can you can definitely tell the, the juncture. But um, so after after the the, the brain, I I just have no other word other than brain. Beth's the Beth part where I was just completely drawn in. Um, then of course it then cuts to John. Yeah, he's tracking down of, of the the genie yeah. who's awesome. <laughs> the genie was awesome. Um, and, uh, it's actually quite a cool idea. This this sentient artwork genie thing is yeah, actually he's, kind he's, of interesting. It's pretty cool when you when you first when you if John first encounters him, it's it's in horrific way, yeah. and uh, it's it's like oh we've now just we've just now met the villain of the piece. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, once again, flips on its head and it completely <laughs> changes around. It becomes yeah. you know it, it's it's quite interesting. But um, and so, so yeah, so then then of course you know, then you get the John stuff, and although the John stuff was interesting. And I enjoyed it, and he's tracking down, and, and and eventually finding out what happened to the rest of the dancer eight. I just wasn't as drawn as I was to the Beth stuff. Yeah, it's it's not as strong emotionally. Like the the Beth stuff just hits you in the face. Yeah, you know what what she's going through, what she's been through is just full on. John's story is kind of possibly more intellectually interesting, but not quite as emotionally moving. Mm. I don't think as Beth's story. Okay, so ratings, guys. What do we think? I'm going to give this a 4.5. Only because it's not my favourite Christine Catherine Rush book ever. So if I was to give this 5, I couldn't give my favourite ones any higher. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I do take your point about the first bit of, bit of the book, but uh, I don't mind the exposition. I, I, right. I actually I find sometimes exposi exposition's a bit yeah, required. Yeah, so 4.5 for me. And... I, highly recommend giving this one a go this book also has just been re-released in trade paperback so you can get it as an ebook and you can also get it um as a hard copy cool. i totally agree about also giving it a go i mean it's it's um i came on i, I think i came on a bit strong about uh about the starters it, it's not it's not crap i mean the, the first couple of chapters it's just mm. not as powerful as the rest of it so um as a whole i think it, 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 it it's a great book I do really like the, the resolution of the dancers and, and just what influence they had on the children. I mean, the, the, the book's called Alien Influences for a reason. It's just their, their interaction with the dancers as children shaped their entire lives. And whether that was good or bad, you'll have to, you'll have to sort of decide for yourself uh, upon reading the book. But it just sort of gives you an idea of, of just how bad racism is. It's just, I mean, it's very anti-racism, this book. And, it's very and, 
and uh, I applaud that because I just think racism is just one of the most disgusting things in the world and mm. it's it's just the importance that we can learn from other people and other races and other cultures it's, it's very much like uh, taking colonies going and taking over from native mm. places yeah it's it's yeah. got a very big uh, Native American vibe to it mm. and, and the things that happen to them so it's just so on that level as well I, I applaud it on that as well but I just just I actually purely just on the Beth segment um, I'm gonna rate it. I'm gonna give it four out of five. I just it's it's magnificent stuff and and should be read. Um, I give this three out of five. Um, the book here for me was a little uneven. Um, partly because it was written at various points in her career and in, in, during the life of the book. However, I do agree with Waldo. I think the Beth stuff is the best written part of the book. That was the bit that you know I I had this a similar reaction to you. I thought you know I really felt for her in a situation at the hotel and the lack of control she had in her own life and how, how really she was at the whims and the mercy of the two people basically telling her who to sleep with. Yeah, um, yeah that guy, he just wanted to smack him in the face, didn't yeah. he? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, 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 an absolute scumbag. And yeah. the, the small justification she, or small sense of gratification she has at saving um, the Monaran at the end, even though she knows she's going to get, it's going to come back on her tenfold. Mm. The strongest bit in the book. Um, it's not certainly a, a, a good book, um, but not one that blew me away in its entirety, if that makes sense. Right. But certainly some good points. I think generally I'd have to agree with everybody here. If I was basing it purely on the Beth story, it would get five. The Beth story is amazing. Um, I agree with what Luke said. There are uneven aspects of the book at times. Um, I do feel that those first 50 pages are weak, and I'm glad that I got through them and continued reading because I might not have normally. Um, if I were just reading this alone, I might have just maybe been a little bit more dismissive after those first mm. sort of maybe 20 or 30 pages in um, but I'm glad I continued reading because the book really becomes fascinating so I give this uh, three and a half so thank you very much Crystal mm. you're welcome thank you Crystal our next Just Jacket we're going to be handing over to David and we're already dreading it <laughs> don't be like that it's uh, yeah so the next Just Jacket will be uh, my pick which is Anno Dracula by Kim Newman and uh you better like it or else. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. Coming up next, Channel Zero. I don't think I can handle it. She goes channel to channel. Oh, looking for that hero. She watched Channel Zero. Okay, so for our inaugural Channel Zero, I thought that we'd go with Star Trek The Next Generation. It was a, a major part of our lives growing up, and uh, was actually my first introduction to the Star Trek universe. I then had to go back and watch the original series, because uh, unusual, but yeah. uh, that's, uh, I had a sheltered childhood, obviously. <laughs> um, so just like the original series, it was created by Gene Roddenberry uh, as part of the Star Trek franchise, um, and Roddenberry, Rick Berman, and Michael Pillar served as executive producers at different times stages during its production. Uh, the show was created 21 years after the original Star Trek and set in the 24th century, which is about 80 to 100 years after the original series. Uh, the, sh the program features the crew of the Enterprise, Enterprise D, in fact, and uh, is uh, captained by Jean-Luc Picard, Patrick Stewart. Yay! First officer, William T. Riker, played by Jonathan Frakes. Starts off as con, but eventually becomes uh, engineering. Um, Geordie LaForge, played by LeVar Burton. Michael Dorn plays uh, Lieutenant Worf, head of security. And the Klingon. And, yeah, the Klingon, head of security. There's a Klingon on the bridge. I know, <laughs> shock horror. 
the lovely Gates McFadden <laughs> plays uh, Dr. Beverly Crusher. I had a massive crush on Dad and Crusher when I was younger. Yeah, I had a crush, a crush on Crusher. A crush on Crusher. Uh, you remember, I watched the entire series. Yeah, I'm talking you. Beverly, not Wesley. Her <laughs> son Wesley, Shut up, Wesley. <laughs> played, played by uh, Will Wheaton. And Deanna Troy, the ship's counsellor, played by Marina Sirtis. And the much-loved Lieutenant Commander Data, played by Brent Spiner. What a legend. Cool. He's pretty cool. He's <laughs> Data. I, I remember thinking, just before it came out, I think... How can they do that? The the only thing that's the same is the Enterprise. <laughs> I, 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 I didn't quite grasp the whole situation initially, obviously. <laughs> I was much the same. I was very um, resistant to watching this show to begin with because I actually had seen the original series beforehand and was a big fan. Hmm. And I thought, no, they just can't do it again. They just can't do it again. And it wasn't actually until David said, tell me about the Borg, actually. It was, it was talking about the Borg and their appearance in the second season that made me think, you know, that actually sounds cool. I should actually check this show out. I grew up watching the, the original series on late night TV and, you know, sort of thought that checking that the next gen would be portraying, you know, the spirit of uh, Kirk and Spock. But then saw First Contact and thought, this is actually quite cool. These characters are good and the Borg themselves are interesting. Yeah. And so that led me to go back and watch. And I tell yeah, you what, I... I am glad. The show had been running for years by that point. The first years, yeah. You've avoided it. It had actually been end. over by that wow. point. Wow, that's cool. And uh, I actually do have to give David a bit of credit for telling me about the Borg and, uh, and letting me know that they appeared in season two because, I'm going to say it now, season one, terrible. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> so if I, didn't, if I didn't know the Borg were coming, I may not have kept watching. I think too many people will disagree with you. Uh, so, <laughs> so the show ran for seven seasons. It was original. Its original run uh, in the States was September 28, 1987 to May 23, 1994. Um, it was uh, going to go for eight seasons, but Paramount pulled the plug after seven uh, because they didn't want it to conflict with the, the movies that were then coming out. Mm. A weird decision, but I think, but that's all right. Um, so yeah, so being being the Star Trek show, obviously it deals with uh, the, all things Star Trek. So exploring new worlds, uh, meeting new races, and you know establishing contact and uh, and boldly going where no one has ever gone before. Essentially, and uh, <laughs> and uh, dealing with real world uh, conflicts, much like alien influences, and, and sort of in dealing with it in a, a futuristic way. Mm-hmm. Where you know, in part, as part of the Federation, where everybody's happy and loves each other, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the bloody Federation. <laughs> a monumental success for Paramount. Uh, they, when they first uh, they thought of uh, doing the program, it was it was on the back of uh, the failed Phase Two series, which eventually then became the motion picture, um, and not a lot of people were interested. So Paramount were really really eager to get it going because they thought it would be a big success, but um, the the actual television companies, NBC, ABC, and stuff like that, really weren't all that interested at all. But once they eventually got it out there, it was a huge success, um, other than you know season one being pretty ordinary. <laughs> <laughs> well, Although well, it did win quite a lot of awards. The first episode was brilliant. Actually, and I think yeah. that's what kept me watching throughout the season. And then the last episode, also brilliant. Yeah. And then, so that led into season two. I've got to say, the last episode is actually, I don't think, a great episode. But it has the Romulans, and the Romulans are awesome. And it's just the awesomeness of the Romulans makes the episode cool. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so as uh, Christopher just said, season one starts with uh, a counter at Farpoint, which 
yeah, although I wouldn't say quite so far as say brilliant, mm. is um, enjoyable stuff. It, it does and what a pilot should it, do. Very, it introduces you to all the characters. It you know. has men in miniskirts. <laughs> it does have many movies. It also oh, introduces us to Q, <laughs> yeah, also who is one of the most awesome recurring characters in the show. He is brilliant. Um, unfortunately, it also has the episode Naked Now, which yeah. is just awful. But surprisingly enough, one of the casts, the actual cast themselves, were their favourite episodes. Okay. Which is strange. It's okay. probably because they just they, they, you know, they get it all. <laughs> <laughs> it does feature a rather humorous moment with Data. It does. Um, he is fully <laughs> Season one, I think, is marred because uh, Roddenberry sort of stood his ground and fought against the other writers, and so there's a lot of there was a lot of going back and forth, and sort of refused to budge on a lot of things, and mm. quite a lot of those writers actually left. Yeah, um, and and so it was a bit a bit stilted, but mm. but uh, like I said, one you know quite a few rewards, uh, especially for the episodes one one zero zero one zero zero one, and the big goodbye, which are two of the only decent episodes in yeah, the, the uh, that goodbye is a very good episode the big it goodbye is, is an yeah. excellent episode yeah. also well, the big goodbye won a, pa- a peabody award which is the first syndicated program and the only star trek episode to ever do so mm. um, it's an so impressive pretty, episode no doubt about yeah, it but of course then it goes into uh, season two uh where they made this bizarre decision to replace beverly crusher with uh catherine pulaski who was in the original series yes she yes. Was. yes but she she's just awful she's just a horrible person mm. <laughs> not, not a likable character in any way. <laughs> I mean, uh, no, she I'm has not, her moments. Yeah, I'm not saying no. Diana Mulder is her, herself. No, no, no. Is she does perfectly but good the character in the role. Is just, yeah, you just want her dead. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she want her to she be takes bored. Takes the focus off Diana Troy. <laughs> season two definitely. <laughs> I like Diana Troy. Um, season two uh, really picks up the game. It introduces Guinan. It has uh, two less episodes. Uh, because of the writer strike, it actually had two less episodes written for it uh, than the first season. So one of the episodes, The Child, was based on a Phase Two script, um, and Shades of Grey, Shades of Grey, was the classic clip show. Oh, and that is abysmal. <laughs> it's terrible stuff. The worst clip, episode. Clip of the shows entire... never work. Especially yeah. <laughs> if you've only got a season to draw on. Exactly. Right. <laughs> the Child is quite good though. I was quite like that one. Um, yeah. And uh, season two also holds. Uh, my favourite Star Trek episode ever of any Star Trek series, which is uh, The Measure of a Man, where uh, Data has to prove his sentience in order to yeah. not be disassembled. Yeah, I just think it's, just, it's magnificently done, mm. and it, it just really shows... I mean, Patrick Stewart just it just goes for well, it, mm. and so, the, the so does Jonathan Frakes. The interesting thing about that episode, um, it's written by Ronald Moore, who, write, who went on to create, do the remake of Battlestar Galactica, yeah, and you know, how much that actually influenced... Battlestar Galactica later on. Yeah. It's very Asimovian. It goes back to our iRobot thing. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. it does. Nice point. Um, also gets, uh, brings in uh, Miles O'Brien. Uh, becomes more but, prominent. No, no, Miles is actually in the pilot episode. He He's is. not named. Yeah. He's not named. But Cole Meany is just awesome. He's, He's a, becomes more prominent. Right? But yeah, he does, he does become... Not necessarily one of the main cast members, but certainly a major presence in the show from that point. And with the death of uh, the then security officer, Tasha Yar, Worf becomes security and uh, Forge goes down to engineering. So then on to uh, season three, head writer Maurice Hurley was let go and Michael Piller took over for the rest of the series. Gene Roddenberry, due to his uh, decline in health, took a less active role, which then gave the others a chance to step forward. And Ronald Moore... Becomes a, a regular writer, yeah, which, uh, and, and you can see that you can shift. Tell. You can see that <laughs> shift. The show takes yeah. a massive leap in season three. Yeah, and 
Season 3, of course, has the, the excellent Yesterday's Enterprise. Mm. Um, I'm a huge fan of alternate reality stories. Yeah, yeah. same here. They love always it. do it for me. Absolutely I'll watch any, any show that's got an alternate reality story, I'll watch. And, uh, and the Klingons really take, uh, take a step forward. Yeah. The Sins of the Father mm. uh, with Worf. And that's, that's I think, a, a, another major turning point in the mm. show because the Klingons are an absolutely fascinating alien race. They're one of the best alien races in, in all of popular culture. Mm. And... Bringing Worf into the show was a good start, but then using Worf to to illustrate what is so fascinating about the Klingon culture mm. is, I think, a huge step in the right direction. And a lot of the best episodes actually focus on Worf and Klingons, and of course, my one of my personal favourite recurring characters, Crazy Chancellor Gelderon. I know, <laughs> Gelderon. Gelderon. He's got the craziest eyes ever. That guy, He's brilliant, He's so awesome. And uh, season three ends with the best of both worlds, part one, which, which is my. Best of both worlds, part one and part two are my yeah. favourite episodes. Yeah, the the idea that there's a race out there that could assimilate others into its own culture and but completely strip them of their identity and sense of self. The Borg they're are like, scary. They're like yeah. cyborg zombies. Yeah, well, good. but it's also suddenly it's not the, the the major threat comes from the fact that they get the card. Mm. Yeah, and suddenly everyone gets scared. Yeah, because it's Picard and he knows they've now got access to all the Federation stuff plus Picard's own knowledge, knowledge and, and, experiences, and experiences, yeah, which yeah. they used to great effect on Wolf Eight Five Nine, is it? Wolf Three Five Nine, Wolf Three Five Nine, where yeah. you know the star, the star system Wolf Three Five Nine. Thank where you they just very much. The Federation. Yeah. Thank you very much, Q. Yeah, so it goes back to encounter a far point. That yeah. bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Earlier than we would have been, it's at least. Way. And it's 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 great to see in that storyline too, because the Federation is always so superior, and we're so much better so than everyone else. We're so yeah. we're more powerful than everything else. We're so good. The fact that they then basically get decimated, I think, is fantastic. By a single ball cube, yeah, it, it wipes it, them out. It creates a threat that the Federation can't deal with, which is very rare to see in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just amazing stuff. And uh, and, and, and plays on in the future episodes. We've, I mean, we've. The car being captured by the Borg just yeah. goes right through the rest of the does, series yeah. and, and the movies. And the films. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty major event. Which is a good thing. I, um, often when disastrous things happen to our heroes in, in TV shows, it, it's, the next episode, everything's all better and it's never heard of again. Yeah. But this is actually deeply wounding to Picard and, and it continues to play a part. In well, the... it, it shapes his character from yeah. that point onwards. Yeah. And... In uh, Season 5, we get... Uh, opens up with Unification, which has Spock. And his efforts to reunite the Vulcan and Romulan and, races. And any time Spock appears, it's just brilliant. It's just awesome. It really the interaction is. between him and Picard is just, mm. just the awe on Picard's face every time he's, he's in yeah. Spock's presence. Mm. It's yeah. amazing. And it uh, goes back to that earlier episode with uh, Spock. Uh, with, with Sarek. Uh, with Sarek. And, yeah. Which I think um, is actually Picard, one, of Picard, uh, one of Patrick Stewart's finest yeah. moments as an actor on the show, that bit yeah. where... Um, uh, he takes in Sarek's emotions, uh, Alzheimer's disease, yeah. but he's also Bindi Alzheimer's syndrome. like condi- yeah. condition. Yeah. yeah, and it you know must have been reading it on reading that on the page. Patrick must be going, oh my god, how the hell do I do this? But he yeah. pulls it off magnificently. Yeah, um, I absolutely believe that he's in he's in quite a lot of pain. Yeah, yeah. Patrick Shining, Stewart yeah. is what holds the show together mm. episode after episode magnificent he, he, he is the central point around which everything on the ship occurs which it should he's the captain yep. you know and just being such an accomplished actor as he is even in that first season when there's a lot of bad episodes a lot of bad dialogue and but he just pulls it all off yeah 
And any any episode where he's the focus is never bad. Yeah. It's a, it's a massive coup getting in. Yeah. Um, so season five uh, brings uh, gives him a chance to shine again in the, the inner light, which uh, won a Hugo for best dramatic presentation. And recurring character Ensign Rowe is introduced. Michelle Forbes. I like Michelle Forbes. She looks like she could kick butt. Oh. And then uh, season six uh, brought on a, a new set of changes. Uh, Rick Berman and Mich- Michael Pillar's time was split between Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, which uh, all tied into the Wolf 359 mm. fight with Cisco surviving the yep. fight. And their first bit at Picard and Cisco meeting in uh, Deep, Space Nine. Deep Space Nine Emissary. Mm. It's like well, Captain Fizzoff. It's similar to the, um, to the meeting between Spock and Picard. You've got two great actors with just great screen presence yeah. and sort of coming head to head with one another just just fantastic great stuff uh, it has the episode's Time's Arrow and uh, well there's also A Fistful of Datas which uh, won an award but I don't think it deserves it <laughs> <laughs> well, Time's Arrow is the better uh, story <laughs> and does have an absolutely fantastic depiction of Mark Twain <laughs> by Deep Throat yep. from X-Files yeah, very well done and he is just brilliant. Like, yeah, he actually steals the show, which is surprising because when you've got you know Data and Picard both doing wonderful things in the episode, but yeah, but he just he just takes the screen from them at every scene that he's in. And in the final season, season seven, Ro uh, has her story concluded in preemptive strike, which sets up the events of what would eventually happen in Deep Space Nine, and finishes up with the magnificent all good things. Yeah, amazing episode. Actually, it is arguably it the times. best final episode of a show ever produced. Arguably, arguably, Mash, arguably. maybe. It's, Mash has got it. Mash is Mash is, is Mash also be up there. Mm. Yeah. Um, for me, the prisoner would be up there as well. Yeah. Um, but it is just awesome. in yeah. in so far as just bringing home everything that the series is about, mm. and it came it came full circle. Uh, yeah, with exactly. The Q thing. Mm. And and just has a, a beautiful final scene as well. I think. It's interesting uh, looking at the looking back at that episode at how they are supposed to look as older and and comparing it to it how they really look as older. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way. That's the way with you know most. Yeah. yeah. If you look at the, the there's an episode of the the original series. Yeah. Oh yes. 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 And yes. If you compare that to you compare William Shatner to that. In the way he looks today. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a whole heap of uh, notable guest appearances. That, uh, of course, Including uh, most of the original cast. <laughs> yeah. gets, gets, a, gets a shoot at some point or another. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I love the bit in uh, Encounter at Farpoint with, with Bones. With Bones. Yep. Very, I mean, quite, quite close to his eventual death. Yeah. And, um, and Scotty on the Dyson and Scotty. It's just awesome. <laughs> It's, it's it's great stuff, <laughs> um, but yeah, but it's, I mean, it's everybody is everybody is, is has been in the show, including uh, Armin Schumann, who we interviewed in the last episode. Um, Stephen Hawking. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Stephen Hawking. <laughs> <laughs> the poker the poker game is becoming a, re- a recurring thing. You know, yeah, yeah. Stephen Hawking experience and that <laughs> But I oh, just there's just too many to mention. It's just really good to hate. Um, also, well, I'm also a big fan of the episode with David Ogden Styers. Oh, he does yeah. such a, a wonderful age. job in that. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, the Kelsey Grammer's in there too. Like I said, uh, it's it was huge. Next Generation is is commonly in the list of uh, the greatest TV shows ever. Magnificent in terms of its overall quality, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, yeah. it's it, the business that it did for Paramount is is uh, is still being felt now. But yeah. eventually, of course, it completely revitalized. 
DS9, Voyager, Enterprise, which then killed the series. Bloody Enterprise. And then um, <laughs> movies. I think the another important thing to look at with Next Gen is the impact it had on science fiction TV in general. There wasn't a lot of science fiction television before 90... You know, in, in those few years after the end of uh, things like Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers. Uh, Buck Rogers, you didn't have a lot of uh, science fiction television, certainly not space opera. Yeah. And then Star Trek uh, Next Gen comes along and says, no, we can do this, and, and it, it can be successful, and then that leads into shows like Babylon 5, yeah. and then um, you know, Babylon 5 then showing that you could do it outside of just the Star Trek franchise, then leading into... An absolute plethora of science fiction shows, both good and bad, <laughs> uh, that came after that. Yeah, I think it helps that it came along in prime time as well, and yeah, there's exactly a whole right. new audience came to it that probably wouldn't have. To be fair, though, there are faults with the show. <laughs> Specifically, well, of course, I mean, it's seven seasons. You're not going to have everything. You can't get no. perfect every but, time. Uh, but then, of course, there's. If you had a Troy episode, uh, except I, for that Romulan, she has one good episode, and that's the Romulan. Episode. Apart from apart from my quip earlier, I actually don't mind the Troy. <laughs> what about the voice? A- anything involving Luxwana, though, who also never never helps. Except no, I was I was, uh, I was always fine with the Diana the, the Luxwana. It's yeah. the Geordie LaForge episodes that got me. Yeah, there are a couple of dull. always always terrible, <laughs> which is unfortunate because Lavar Burton's very good. Oh, he's, he's fine. a good he's actor, actually. Yeah, yeah. but. Uh, I I actually got the he, he got a, the worst stick than Wesley I thought. Wesley, oh, that's terrible. I, I was going to say, what did we think about? Wesley? I mean, I, I'm not, a, I'm not a, obviously I'm not a Wesley fan until until much later on. I mean, he, he's basically just Gene Roddenberry mm-hmm. in, in the in the flesh on the show. It, it, yeah. It's pretty obvious. But the Geordie LaForge episodes were just always so terrible. Mm. <laughs> I felt bad. And they, they kind of they, you kind of get less of them too I mean, as the series falling progresses. Falling in love with the hologram and it's like, yeah. what the Seriously. Anyway, so that's it. So, uh, rating on the show as a whole. One of the best science fiction television shows ever made. That's, for the most part, with Star Trek in general. I'm not a huge fan of Voyager and Enterprise, but um, the original series, Deep Space Nine and Next Gen, um, uh, of the highest quality. Um, I give this four and a half looks. I give it four looks. Um, I think there's some absolutely fantastic stuff here, but like I said, there are certain lulls and certain characters that don't really um, appeal to me. It's a, it is a fantastic show and well worth seeing. Well, I'm going to ignore the the flaws in it because you can't have a perfect show, and I'm going to give it a five overall. Nice. It, it alternates between my between being my favourite of the franchise. I love the original series. So I, th- I think it depends on what mood I'm in. And, and sometimes I really love Deep Space Nine as well. And I think uh, Avery Brooks's Cisco is just <laughs> the best captain. I know that's a controversial... Uh-oh. <laughs> controversial. He's controversial. Captain, but, uh, he's certainly the toughest captain. He's... And, and I, was, I just wanted to point it out there, what you said about uh, Deanna Troy's uniform. I, I saw Marina Sirtis once at a Star Trek convention and, and she was also of the same opinion. She was very happy when she finally got to wear a uniform. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you, as a male viewer of that age, I was upset when she finally got a uniform. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so I'll, I'll just finish off with uh, yeah, I'll just uh, agree with everything everybody said, and I'm going to give it four out of five. So that's it for our first uh, Channel Zero. I hope you liked it. Let us know. Coming up next, roundtable on NCP's top five movie cliches. Yeah.
Okay, NCP's top five movie cliches. There we all love a, a decent movie cliche. I, mean, I don't know we? if we love them, but uh, <laughs> we certainly acknowledge them when they appear in Look, movies. They, they exist. It's just, it's just a fact of life. You have to put it's, up with them. It's not just that they exist, they're actually prolific in Hollywood. <laughs> but with this, when you say top five, you know, are these the greatest cliches of all time? or Just the ones that we find the most humorous, I suppose. Or, or, or the most bearing. annoying. Or the most annoying. I don't know. <laughs> well, the most cliche of the, the cliche top five was the cliche <laughs> we're not immune they're about to provide us with some entertainment they do okay so started off at number five. Oh no before i get into the list i just want to point out that uh unlike with uh most of our lists it's pretty easy to put a list together on who the top uh, whatever the top five is top five villains top five heroes whatever Everybody agrees that Batman's awesome. Everybody agrees that the Joker's awesome. That sort of stuff. Whereas this was uh, was very varied. Like between the crew, it was it was a lot of a, a lot of different choices, and so it was kind of hard to put a top five together. So I'm actually the the honourable mentions list is bigger than the top five list. <laughs> so I'll get through the top five as quickly as I can, and then get into the, into the honourable mentions. So starting off at number five, uh, plain woman turns into hot woman by letting down hair and taking off glasses. If only that were always true in it's, real life. Uh, the, the perfect example of that for me is that uh, she's out of control. The Tony Danta film. <laughs> well, that, that entire, entire fun, film, fun part. That entire, entire film, film was Tony built Dan- around that, that cliche. <laughs> A classic for my job. <laughs> yeah, this one, it's... It, it's The problem with it is, I think, more than anything else, is much like that Tony, Tony Danta film, there are a lot of movies where the entire story is built around that one cliche. Breakfast Club at the, at the end where yeah. Ali Sheedy's character is suddenly it's, hot. It, it, unlike a lot of the cliches, which can just be annoying, <laughs> this one actually shapes the story, the plot of the entire film, it's just a, over and over again. Do you know what? I actually saw it in real life once. I was at a train station and there was a woman standing there and she had a plaid skirt on that sort of came down below her knees and the conservative looking boots on and a cardigan and her hair was done up in a bun and she had glasses on but you could see underneath it all she had a fairly nice figure and she had really nice bone structure in her face so I could just picture her undoing the bun and putting the glasses (laughs) off and and there she is. Yeah, but she would have to do it by slowly taking the glass and then flicking Flick the bun out. A bit of a wind machine. Like, she can't just undo the bun. No. She just flicks her head and suddenly the bun just comes loose. That's right. You to pull the, the chopstick out of the bun. And... Absolutely, that's it. And suddenly your hair is just beautifully styled. So, so although it's a cliche, it can happen in real life. <laughs> You're awesome. Uh, coming up at number four, dying people say something moving, inspiring or significant to the plot before passing on. Yeah, so Samuel actually... Jackson from um, Deep Blue Sea. Then <laughs> that's a brilliant example of it. Well, this is this is actually one of my personal annoyances. Every time somebody meaningful dies in a film, there's always happens to just be somebody there to to cradle them in their arms, and the person will always just say something so important to what happens next. And look, I always loved you. Yeah, or you know, find this. The missing thing here, or with great power becomes great responsibility, or whatever. It's or it's that sky. Exactly. It's like, why can't somebody in a film 
just die and be dead and the person shows up too late and they're already dead and they're like oh my god this person's died no it's always the person just has to be just that last little breath of life left in them to say something really important to the plot (laughs) or 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 it's it's the killer is is <laughs> uh, the classic is the deep blues. <laughs> I'm also a big fan of, uh, of course, Citizen Kane's Rosebud, which just sets the ball in motion. True, but that's not actually somebody. For, for me, the cliche is when somebody else is actually there mm. to hear, Plus there's a, but, to hear, and is cradling the person yeah, in their arms. But it's also the it meaning a... that meaningful thing they're saying to. Whereas yeah. Rosebud, you have to go sit through two hours of the film to actually get the meaning <laughs> yeah, of Rosebud. Yeah. I don't think it was a cliche at the time either. Cause... What do you mean have to sit through two hours? You, you should be privileged. No, but that you, I, I'm a huge fan of Citizen Kane. Don't get me wrong. Why you said it, it was like torture. Um, it's like, you know, if you want if you want meaning for that moment, you know, it, it's yeah. you've got to yeah. watch the film. So that's right. Okay, moving on. Number three. Anyone returning to the scene of a crime will find something that the other forensic workers or detectives just happen to miss. <laughs> and it's always in an obvious spot as well. Nobody's come along in the meantime and sort of stood on it and got the on the sole of their shoe well, and walked away. Ridiculous. Or... That was all the, the time. Thing I love it. The thing to remember is that... Uh... Really, standard police officers and forensic crews are just hopeless. Like they just they clearly just don't know what they're doing, and they just yeah, you just need that special person to come along and do their job. I love the the new Sherlock that happens in that in the first episode. Yeah. <laughs> Number two, mobile phones work almost anywhere unless it's important that they don't. Now uh, portrayed quite successfully in the X-Files mm. where it's like deep <laughs> underground cabins well it's a standard of, <laughs> their phones work it's a standard these days of any horror or thriller or you know even a lot of action films Is you know it's like the the key moment where the person needs to make a call no phone's yeah. just not going to work you know doesn't matter they could be out in the open top of a building whatever they're just not going to get that reception <laughs> everywhere else no unless, <laughs> everywhere it's, else unless it's important that it does unless it's important that the phone does work yeah <laughs> X-Files. Unbelievable. Every, every episode. Ridiculous. <laughs> but they, they had special FBI phones. Uh, those 80s. Powered by no, alien no, technology. Bricks. This huge brick phones. Powered power from That's technology from Area 51. <laughs> That's a good point. That's possible. That's possible. Strangely enough, it's actually one of my favourite things about watching X-Files is you actually see the development of mobile phones from, you know, like 1994 to 2003. The X-Files, aka the development of the mobile phone. (laughs) Yeah, they go from these huge clunky things in the first season to these tiny little guys at the end there. Their torture's always impressive, though. They make fun of it in one of the Lone Gunman solo episodes where Boulder, you know, pulls out his mobile phone. And it's this, you know, thing that should be, you know, attached to a handset. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that you need a court. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and our number one top movie cliche: villain or group of villains will attack individually and only after waiting for the hero to be ready. <laughs> oh, it's a good example of that in Iron Man too. Yeah, they just stand there and wait until he suits up. Um, um, so um, the fight against Whiplash. Yeah, I've been standing there with the, these whips going all other places, and, and I love it. Then he takes a couple of seconds for Tony Stark to get his, his suit on. He just stands there and waits for it. Like you could slash him across the face in that time or something. What sort of a villain are you? Yeah, but but he's I see what you're saying. He could have looked there. I've always called this Bruce Lee syndrome. Yeah, because in every Bruce Lee film, there'd be like twelve expert martial arts guys but rather than just rush him and pin him down and beat the crap out of him it's like no I must attack and when I get the crap beaten out of me 
then you can attack. And maybe two guys will attack just so that, you know, Bruce can do one of his cool moves. Yes. But I just, for once, I would just love to see 12 guys just play stacks on with the hero. I know. I think the, the major, I think the best personification of this is Kill Bill. Where mm. she's going up against the the, the ninety yeah. or the 49ers or the 99ers or whatever the hell that game's called. The ninety nine, yeah. Yeah, it's this huge group of people, and they all come at once. It's yeah. like, are you yeah. insane? Someone just pulling a gun and blow her it's, face off. It's one of those. Things I just where... don't get it, and it's meant to be all stylish and, yeah. and just. I just I thought uh, it's it was incredibly boring. It, it's one of those things where essentially the only reason it happens is because it's a it can look cool visually and you get to see the main character do all of their moves and so that you're not lost in the battle basically and but unfortunately in story it is ludicrous (laughs) just just once too i'd like to see the bad guy get beaten up or killed by somebody in consequence like get killed by a red shirt (laughs) he's not standing there waiting for the hero of the piece to come come and and do the epic battle at the end On a similar note, what I'd like to see one day is for the villain to just go, well, we've captured you, take out a gun and shoot the hero dead. That brings us to the honourable mentions. (laughs) (laughs) That is, in fact, one of the... The the villain reveals a nefarious scheme um, to uh, the trussed-up hero. (laughs) And then, then of course, it wastes all that time and could have just killed the hero, but instead lets them live and then... Of course, pays the price. So you mean like, um, say, in, for instance, Goldfinger, instead of just shooting him with shooting him with his bolt of PPK, attaches him to a table, activates a laser the that laser. moves so slowly. <laughs> but then we wouldn't have the awesomeness of my favourite James Bond line ever. You don't expect me to talk, do you? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die! <laughs> but, um, that, that's actually, that's, that, that's one of the cliches that even Hollywood... Yeah. Has now realised is absurd. Like, you don't see a lot of it these days. Mm-hmm. And he wouldn't have the Bond films without it. Let's no, exactly not. right. <laughs> it's just the way it works. Uh, and of course, one of the most popular was uh, cars that explode as soon as they're shot. Um, or fly off a cliff or whatever the case may be. But as Richard pointed out, not as prevalent. As yeah, I've, I've been watching a lot of 70s films recently. And it's like, it, there are cars in 70s films that actually burst into flames as they hit the railing before going off the cliff and smashing. Or <laughs> <laughs> um, one bullet will, will completely ignite a car in a second. Actually, I said, the reason I'm, I'm a fan of this one is because uh, I watched 21 Jump Street recently. Don't judge a book by its cover, people, as the film's actually quite funny. And they play on that during the car chase scene. Right. They keep, they, every time uh, one of the cars gets hit or something like that, they keep expecting it to explode and it never does and they're quite disappointed by it. <laughs> I, I just thought it was hilarious. The Mythbusters actually did an episode on this one and, and you know, even though we all knew that's probably not the case, they disproved. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. It's just, I mean, cars, like you said in the 70s, I mean, they, they the were just, cars were just, just death Eddie. traps. Yep. You wouldn't get into yeah. one of them. <laughs> Who knows what would happen? And the, my, my, the funniest thing about those, just how instantaneous it is, one car hits another car and um, just bursts into flames. Not even a, not even a crash, then a slow burn, and yeah. then the car explodes when the flame gets to the... A big deal tank. was made out of, was made about the scene in T2. Yeah. Where he actually, he, act, he bothers to have a shot of showing the the wire spark yeah. on the on the oil in order for it to then explode. Yeah. And it's like, oh, wow, it's a revolution. And it's like, finally, we have a reason. It's like, are you serious? It's, it's still a car exploding. <laughs> unless yeah, the car unless, is... Unless it's something. Unless you know? the car is a major character in the actual show, like the General Lee. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah. Then the general, general Lee's not going to explode. That's right. No, no. <laughs> the yeah, general Lee could survive anything. Yeah, the, it's not going to explode. Bird never exploded, <laughs> yeah. but every single car around them would explode. They did oh, totally yeah, in the movie, though, didn't they? Yeah, it yeah, is, they yeah. did. Yeah, the comedic effect. Yeah. <laughs> My bad. Uh, a pet, personal pet peeve of Rian Richo. Nobody ever says goodbye at the end of a telephone conversation. Yeah, look, this is a minor one, I know, but yeah, my dad. I, I can't one. think of a single telephone conversation in a movie or a TV show where someone actually says, see you later, goodbye, you know, take it easy, anything like that. People always just hang up. <laughs> now, if I was on a phone call and someone hung up on me, I'd actually be really, really annoyed at them. If they so didn't you, say goodbye. You become the killer. Exactly. When, it, when so a stranger calls angry. style. <laughs> i call them back and say, hey, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> Did you just <laughs> hang up on me? What? Uh, people falling from high buildings always land on a car. <laughs> well, once again, that's just a nice visual Lethal effect. Weapon. Of the Lethal Weapon. All the time. Lethal Weapon is one of the most famous ones, I suppose, but... Um, the Mission Impossible films. Um, this means war, which I just watched recently. Lands on the well, but to be what fair, if everything. you're in the city, there are going to be cars parked outside the buildings. What are the odds? <laughs> <laughs> There's, I but, think, a nice addendum to that one too is that people falling will always somehow manage to do a 180 turn and be able to look back up at where they're falling from. Now, I don't know if I'm plunging to my death. I don't think I'm going to be like. I've just got to turn around to get that one well, last look. Up in Lethal Weapons from. case, that's 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 obviously so they can have a bit of a display happening there at the end. Yeah. 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 <laughs> also, you know, if they don't die, then the odds are that the character gets up and walks away with no broken spine, <laughs> yeah. no internal bleeding. It's, it's amazing how resilient can, people can be when the story requires it. Every time there's an explosion, somebody is running away and gets just far enough to be blown off their feet, but not damaged. <laughs> or walking away in slow motion, not even looking back. <laughs> That's a good point. It's as amazing well. how um, shrapnel just doesn't really go very far in movies. They try, they've tried. Uh, they've, they've obviously acknowledged it because they've tried to be a bit more realistic about it. In uh, Mission Impossible Three, he gets knocked by the concuss the concussion yeah. of the explosion. Yeah. it's a cool scene. Yeah. Um, but majority of the time, it's yeah. it's. Uh, there's <laughs> of no effect of any guy. <laughs> you can always park anywhere you want with no problems and usually right out front of where you want to be. Yeah. Oh, worst... Not a few George Costanza. <laughs> <laughs> but the worst is if you're in a city like New York. Yeah. Which is just packed. <laughs> well, <laughs> that doesn't matter. You can always pull up directly at the front of the place you want to pull up at the front of. No, I don't, count, I don't no... count hotels because they're designed to have that area. No, no, no. But, it's but just everywhere shops. else. Yeah. Any, anyway, like, anyway you'll just always find that. You know, like, no one in a movie drives around looking for a parking space. Unless there's a comedic reason for it. Yeah. That's New, New York also brings up another cliche. You can always get a cab whenever you want. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> All right, we'll finish off with uh, a classic sound in space. Oh. <laughs> now, there's, there's an obvious reason for it. Mm. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, it's but it's bit... just wrong. And and JJ Abrams in the in the first Star Trek reboot um, proved that you can use silence in space to good effect. Mm. Yeah. Well, two thousand and one, two thousand and one, and Firefly and Serenity. Yeah. yeah well, no two thousand and one, to be fair, is, it does have that soundtrack in the background, whereas yeah. if but it's just is, but silent. But you don't hear the um, the, you don't hear the um, you don't hear the machinery, no, the machinery no. or the no. the pod turning or. Well, I think what I think is actually weird about this is as growing up and obviously you know Star Wars mm. um, with the, you know sounding space and stuff. Even though I knew scientifically it was inaccurate, I didn't care because let's face it, it's awesome. Yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, the Star Wars, and Star Wars has never you know. 
Proclaimed to be a scientific. That's right. So who cares? Science and the, story and anyway. The, yeah. the, the, the thought of missing out of not hearing the TIE Fighters would just bring me to tears. Um, but then they sort of caught on to it, and you had stuff like Firefly and, and stuff like that having no sound in space. Mm. And yeah, it's accurate, yeah. but it's just not as cool. No, <laughs> Let's be honest, it's not as cool. It, it is. If you've got a show that's it's claiming to be not not sort of fantasy, but it's claiming to be set in the future, so the science and stuff all has to work, so it should be no, accurate. I disagree. Mm. It makes in, sense in, in 2001 future, right? because 2001 goes out of its way to be accurate. Mm. In Whereas the future, Firefly, come on. Prometheus. Prometheus. Don't get me started. <laughs> in, the future, in the future, we've developed technology that enables sound to be heard in a vacuum. <laughs> I, I like it. Why Dad, did you do space, it? They now can hear you scream. <laughs> yeah, it's. <laughs> so that's it. That's our uh, our cliches. Uh, it's, it's, uh, that was a bit of fun. <laughs> Not exactly revolutionary. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, yeah, like we said at the start, Look, it's, it's, it's they exist. We, and you just got to yeah. laugh at them, and we, we all know them. We all recognise them when they come <laughs> up. We all have a good laugh, or we get annoyed, or we just accept them. But they're they're just a part of movies. I'm willing to accept cliches as long as the story's still good. Yeah, I'm cool with that. <laughs> all right, coming up next, coming soon. Okay, coming soon, out on August 9, is Zombie Romance, Warm Bodies. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds interesting. i, I got to say, I'm getting kind of a bit sick of zombies. I absolutely, I'm obsessed by zombies, and zo- all things zombie, and even I'm getting sick of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, seriously, give it a rest. Yeah. But anyway, I'll still see World War Z when it comes out. When it comes well, out. Well, If it comes out. It'll come out. Yeah, eight weeks of reshoots. You might as well just shoot the whole film again. <laughs> it's not a good sign, is it? No. Um, and also the same day we get, uh, it's not exactly pop culture, but uh, we get an Australian film, The Sapphires, mm. uh, which deals with uh, the Sapphires, who are a group of uh, Aboriginal ladies who went out to sing for the boys during the war. Um, I actually think it looks pretty interesting. Yeah, it mm. looks like uh, it could be a really fascinating story and uh, interesting part of Australian history. Yeah, as, as long as they um, don't go into the sentimental cliche that stories like this Tento um, yeah. could be judging from the trailer I don't think it's going to actually it could it, it could go either way it's, it could trailer. but I, I think it's, it's I mean it's a period of Australian history that needs to be celebrated I think yeah, I, I agree. Mean, they, were, they were a good band and what they did was something to be applauded check it out would you call them a band really call they're a, a band, band. Group. Group. A group group like the Andrews sisters or something yeah yeah uh, then the week after, on August 16, we get The Bourne Legacy, which continues the Bourne no. franchise uh, with Hawkeye. Yes. <laughs> Was anybody really clamouring for the continuation of the no. Bourne franchise by just having a completely different person go through the same thing? It's basically the same deal. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really see the point. I mean, I'm not, I, don't, I don't hate it or anything. I don't, I'm, I'm kind of ambivalent about the whole thing. I do want to point out, though, that uh, just on a How the Mighty Have Fallen moment, Edward Norton. Yeah. Leading man to supporting cast member in a fourth Bourne movie. Edward Norton got to pay the bills. <laughs> He's got to pay the bills. He's got to pay the bills. Edward Norton's problem is, uh, just briefly, is that He's brilliant. But he's a control mm. freak. But he's such a bastard. Mm. <laughs> it's, it's like, seriously. I don't think you can say that. I can say that. It's just, you've just, I mean, seriously. I'm, I mean, yeah, we accept that your, your acting ability is magnificent. Mm. It does have David Strathairn in it, though, who is a personal favourite of mine. He's a prick. I think he's just awesome. So, yeah, look, once again, it could go either way. <laughs> it could go either way. 
So don't forget you can contact us by email at feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com or post on our Facebook wall at www.facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast or tweet us at nerdculturecast or leave a comment on any post on our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com And don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Okay, so next episode we're actually going to have a bit of a change of pace. Uh, we're actually going to devote the entire episode to all things Joss Whedon. He's a long-time nerd favourite uh, in terms of the nerd, nerd culture itself. Uh, and he's currently riding high on, on the success of the Avengers. So, uh, And... Also, to be pointed out here, David is something of a uh, <laughs> Sweden fanatic. Uh, he's, he's joined the cult of Fan Sweden. Boy. Go so far as to say fanatic. Fanatic, everybody. <laughs> Fanboy. So yeah, so we'll cover the career of Joss Whedon and uh, his highlights and his lowlights. That's it for episode 30. Thanks everybody for joining me. Richard. You are, of course, welcome to have my presence here. Luke. Uh, I'll think about it. <laughs> And Crystal. And the killer was... Just don't get into the exploding car whilst you're fleeing on your high heels. Or don't run up the stairs when you know the killer is in the house with you. Don't go into the basement. Don't. 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 <laughs> Bye. Bye.